Abram said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. And when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So far, our reading of God's word. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if you've ever seen a great welcome celebration. I'm sure that many of you here, you remember uh, in Vancouver, not far from here, in 2010, uh, the great welcome celebration uh, of the Olympics, the, the opening ceremonies. The idea of the opening ceremony is to welcome in the athletes, to welcome in the spectators, in a, in a sense, to welcome in the world to your country. Uh, you're supposed to showcase your culture and uh, invite them to come and join in the games in your homeland. But maybe you can think of other great welcomes as well. Maybe what comes to mind for you is uh, when the king or the queen of England uh, goes somewhere. Whenever they visit a new place, there are great welcomes waiting for them, huge celebrations. Uh, before she passed away, Every year, Queen Elizabeth would go to Scotland for a vacation. And every single year when she came back, there would be a new welcome celebration. It was a big deal. 
But yet, commenting on this passage, uh, a well-known theologian you might have heard of named Edmund Clowney, uh, he mentioned that in spite of there being huge welcomes for great people and events that we can think of in our lives, there's actually a different sort of welcome that outshines every single one of them. And he explains that this other kind of welcome is far more monumental and far more moving, even though it's not quite so grand, in a sense. And that, he explains, is a welcome for a nobody. Just think about it. Maybe you've seen videos, maybe you've experienced them in your lives. What are the greatest welcomes? The ones that are the most powerful and moving and memorable. It's when you welcome home a nobody. Just a friend, a family member, maybe a parent or a child who's been gone for a long time. No one else knows that person. They wouldn't recognize their name, but for you, it means everything. So much more moving than the open ceremonies of the Olympics. Edmund Clowney remembered after the end of the Vietnam War, he would be driving through the streets and you'd see balloons and banners and streamers on trees and garages saying, welcome home, some name he had never heard of. And he just knew driving down the street that there was a party going on at that house, a party for a nobody someone he would probably never meet, a great celebration for a son or a daughter or a mother or a father or a friend. Still today, you can find countless videos online of people welcoming home people you would never know, nobodies. And here, Edmund Clowney says, in this passage that we read together, we get a picture of a welcome for nobodies like us. A picture of a welcome in heaven That's awaiting for us. A picture of banners being raised in heaven with God himself and the angels, with our names on it, for every sinner who by God's grace believes and is welcomed home to God's feast. And that's what this story is all about. The Father's wonderful welcome. We'll explore this story in two parts. First, we'll see the reception of the younger son. And then secondly, the response of the elder son. So first of all, the reception of the younger son. As you might have noticed, the story begins right away with two sons. And we zero in on the younger son. And we find that he's living with his father. He has for years. And he is absolutely hating it. He hates the rules and he hates the work. He he just wants to be away. He just wants to be free. And so he makes a terrible request. He says in verse 12, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Imagine that. He's basically saying, Dad, I don't want anything to do with you. I wish, I wish you would just die and leave me with your stuff, but you won't. Just give me my part of the inheritance now. And you, you can live the rest of your years with less money, with less property, with less stuff, and with one less son. I want your stuff that you've worked hard for, and I'm out of here. He sees his father as a harsh taskmaster, and he wants nothing to do with him, just his stuff, which at this point he isn't even entitled to at all. How dare he request it? And brothers and sisters, even though we're often familiar with it, we need to realize what a horrible picture this is. What kind of a son would do this? And we need to make no mistake and realize that this, in a sense, is a picture of you and me. This is a picture of humanity after the fall into sin. 
by nature, we love God's stuff. We love the things that he's given us. But by nature, we want nothing to do with the God who made it. And we demand that he better not dare tell us what we can do with it. There's a Middle Eastern New Testament scholar named uh, Kenneth Bailey who is familiar with the culture in the Middle East, the, the culture that this parable would have been told in. And he explains that in response to such an insult from his son, there's really only two reasonable responses from the father here. This is an honor-shame-based culture, and this father has been greatly shamed by his son. And so the father could either harshly punish him right away, likely physically, or else he could throw him out of his house with nothing at all. But yet, notice in our story the shocking truth. The father does neither. Instead, he divides his property among them. He gives the share to the younger brother and the share to the older brother as well. Imagine, imagine this. If you own a, a house or a business or property, dividing up probably about 30% for the younger brother and giving it to him. The son then gathers it all, which probably means he, he sold it for cash, just took the money, and he, head out, he heads out into a far country. And finally, he feels free. Finally, he can do whatever he wants, uh, whenever he wants, and he can go and really enjoy his freedom, his life. But we read the fun doesn't last very long. The friends that he makes, they, they don't last very long, and the money doesn't last very long either. Eventually, a famine hits, and he has nothing. And so we read he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. And more literally, the text says, you have to picture it, he, he attached himself to one of the citizens that country. Well, maybe you've gone around in uh, some city somewhere that's well, racked with the problem that many of our cities have, uh, an issue of people who are living in a great deal of pro uh, poverty and who can't uh, so, uh, provide for themselves. Well, the picture we get here, according to Kenneth Bailey, that Middle Eastern scholar, is that what it means when this younger brother sa it says that he attached himself to the citizen you have to picture you're driving a car around in uh, some city, and then you stop at a red light, and someone hops out with a squeegee and starts squeegeeing your windshield. And then they demand some payment for their work. This was apparently likely something like that. He went up to a citizen and started trying to do work and demanding payment. He attached himself to him. And again, in an honor-shame kind of culture like this, apparently what you do in this sort of a case, not to insult the other person, is if you wanted them to leave you alone, is you would offer them a job, but you intentionally offer them a job that they would never, ever accept. And perhaps that's what happens here. That's what Kenneth Bailey suggests. The citizen sees this young Jewish man who has attached himself to him, and so to get rid of him, he offers him a job he cannot possibly accept. The lowest job of the low. He offers that he can go and care for the pigs. That was the deme most demeaning, that was the least, uh, uh, least good, the least attractive job for any slave. And especially for a Jewish man, it would be insulting and degrading. It would be ceremonially unclean. And so the man offers him this job. But this young man we read about, he is so desperate, he accepts even this job. And while he's caring for the pigs... He longs to eat the pig food, and no one gave him anything. 
And then finally we read, he came to himself. For as other translations say, he came to his senses. And he remembers so long ago. He remembers at home. He remembers his dad. He remembers the home-cooked meals he had before. And he thinks, how many of my father's hired servants had more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. We need to think for a second of hired servants. Hired servants were the lowest of the low. There were household servants, and they at least were trusted. They got to stay in the household or in some servant quarters, and uh, they got uh, food for each meal. Hired servants were a step below that. They just came in on the occasion that more work had to be done. They were paid the least. They were not typically trusted. And this young man thinks back to his father, and he remembers the lowest of the low, the hired servants who worked for him. They had more than enough food. He starts to realize what a father he had. And so he thinks and he's ready to go and repent, knowing that he sinned against his father and against God himself. And he's going to go to his kind father and ask, even though he doesn't deserve it, if he might be able to be one of these day laborers, these hired servants. And again, in this sort of a culture, the answer from the father should probably still be no. But his father is so kind, this young man figures that he'll perhaps show him this mercy. And brothers and sisters, he is so wrong, isn't he? We get way, way too familiar with this story. But really think, really imagine for a second, how should the father react when this boy comes back? How how would you react? This son ripped your family apart. He ripped your house and your business apart. And he basically wished you dead. And now he's coming back, years later, penniless and filthy, because he's been a fool and squandered everything you worked hard for. And he's coming back seemingly because he's hungry and wants even more generosity from you. What would you expect the response to be? Certainly you would expect disappointment, if not rebuke or anger. At best, you could expect maybe an offer to come in and get cleaned up as the father helps you find an apartment somewhere away from him. Edmund Clowney, again, he draws a parable to a Buddhist uh, parable. Uh, And uh, there's a similar situation. But in that case, the kind father allows his son to come in and start at the very bottom of the ladder in his business. He lets him come in and shovel manure. Eventually, he works his way up through the family business, and eventually that that kind father in this Buddhist parable, he does make him an heir again, uh, an heir to all the inheritance, but after decades of working his way back up. Now we can turn back to this parable, thinking about what the response should be, what we would expect the response to be, and see what the response actually is, how this gracious father receives back his son. Remembering that this young man who insulted his father greatly is a picture of sinful people like us and the God that we've hated even though he gave us everything. Think of how God should receive us and then read and be delighted afresh about how our God does receive us. What we read is well, this filthy, dishonorable young man is still a long way off. His father saw him 
and felt compassion for him. I've explained this word before. This word compassion doesn't mean a little bit of sympathy. The father sees his son. God sees you and me facing the consequences of our own sin. And he is moved with pity in his heart. It means to have a deep feeling of compassion churning within you. It's to have your heart throbbing with pity. That's what the father feels. And the father runs. I suspect many of you know that any self-respecting Middle Eastern man would never run. Not even, or especially not for the likes of this. But this father doesn't care. He pulls up his tunic, and for the first time in decades, he sprints to get back to his son. When he reaches his son, he hugs him. You can picture his knees buckling underneath him as he falls around his neck. The Greek makes clear he kisses him not once or twice repeatedly. He can't stop kissing his boy. His son eventually begins his pre-planned apology, admitting that he sinned against God and his father and acknowledging his unworthiness to be a son. And yet his dad cuts him off. He turns around to his servants and he tells them, quick, get the best robe, put the signet ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. He's saying, dress him up as my son. And notice this. I really love this uh, little word choice. I love that he says, quick. Quickly. Think for a second. What's the rush? There is no rush at all. The only rush is that this father, that, that God wants us restored as quickly as possible. What the father is saying is, get these filthy rags off my boy ASAP. Put shoes on his feet so he doesn't have to take another step in his bare, dirty feet. Quickly make him my son again. And then finally, the father says, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Meat was a delicacy back then, the fattened calf especially so. This is the hugest celebration you can imagine. And all the friends, the whole community would be invited. What is such an occasion? It's sinful people like us coming back to God. That is the cause for the biggest celebration of all. And brothers and sisters, we need to think, does this response from the Father make any sense? Is it logical? Not really, right? The only way this kind of a response from God, from this Father, makes sense is because this Young man who came back, it's his little boy. His love for him is huge, it's boundless. His joy and mercy and kindness and forgiveness is boundless too because his love for him is. So what a welcome he gives his disobedient little son. Far greater than any uh, Olympic opening ceremony or a welcome for the king or queen. This is how God welcomes nobodies like us who turn from our sin and come seeking forgiveness and grace. And the Pharisees scoffed at Jesus because he received sinners in this way. But Jesus explains God receives sinners with open arms. That is the reception of a repentant sinner. And that brings us to our second and final point, the response of the older brother. Imagine for a second if this was a movie. As the celebration begins, the camera pans away from the house where the music and dancing has just started, 
and it turns out towards the fields. And there the elder brother is walking back to the house after a long day of work, probably supervising the workers in the field. And as he comes close, he hears music and dancing. And apparently the the party has spilled out over onto the front lawn. And so he, he calls over one of the servants standing out there. And he starts questioning him about what in the world is going on. Imagine being that servant for a second. The servant was probably thrilled. What a great opportunity he gets. He gets to share the good news with the older brother. Your brother is home. He's a little bit worse for wear, or at least he was when we got him, but, but he's safe and sound and cleaned up. And your father has killed the fattened calf, and the whole neighborhood is coming to celebrate. Again, if you've seen any of those videos online of soldiers or family members returning from overseas after years, you know what to expect. We expect this elder brother to run in and embrace his brother who is finally home to show the same kind of love that his father had for him. But instead, shockingly, we get the opposite. The brother, even after a long day of work, won't go inside and grab a bite to eat. He stays outside furious. And maybe you've been to a a house or an event or a party before uh, where something awkward happened. Maybe there was an argument or maybe someone fell and got hurt or whatever. And maybe you've experienced how suddenly the whole party gets a little bit tense. Everyone can feel it. They know something's going on. We have to imagine in this big party that the the father was throwing in celebration that suddenly everyone in that house got a little bit tense. How long do you think it took before news spread that the elder brother was outside and he is not happy? Uh, Again, Kenneth Bailey Uh, The Middle Eastern scholar, he explains that this, again, would be a huge dishonor to the father. And ordinarily, two responses once again. The father could send out some servants to punish the brother and demand he come in and apologize. Or else the father could stand up at the party and publicly denounce his son and then just deal with him harshly later. Now take a look at the story and see what the father does this time. With this son who has insulted him publicly. And keep in mind also that Jesus is telling this parable to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the older brother in this story. So remember that context. Jesus is now on his way to Jerusalem. He knows that the Pharisees are growing in hatred of him. They are his enemies at this point, or at least they consider him their enemy. Before long, Jesus knows they are going to falsely accuse him. They're going to have him murdered. The elder brother represents Christ's enemies. But how does Jesus explain God the Father's attitude towards them? Jesus' enemies refusing to come into the banquet feast with the Father and in danger of being trapped outside of the feast forever. Jesus explains, the Father gets up and goes out to that brother too. There we read, he pleads with him to come into the feast. What a father this is. That's when the older brother reveals his heart. The heart of a a Pharisee and so often the heart of religious people like us. Yes, the older brother lived in the house. He, He lived with the father. He even obeyed the father, he said. But he certainly didn't respect the father. He certainly didn't love the father or enjoy the father. He reveals his heart in verse 29 when he says, Look, many years I have served you. Literally in the Greek, it could be translated, many years I have slaved 
before you and never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. We read that the older brother was remaining at home. He listened to his dad, but he hated every minute of it too. He too didn't love his father. He loved his dad's stuff. It wasn't a delight listening to his father, working alongside his father. It was a duty. And for the elder brother and for the Pharisees, and so often for us too, we need to consider, is living with God, living for God, obeying God, is it a duty? Or is it a delight? Is it a privilege? The father responds, son. We need to realize this is a tender word in Greek, not the ordinary word for son. It means my child or my boy. He says, my boy, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Remember, that's literally true. He divided his inheritance between the two of them. All that is mine is yours. But it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. But the elder son didn't know, and he didn't understand his father's heart. He didn't understand his love or his compassion towards either or, or both of his sons. And to understand this parable, it's important to think for a moment. What would the elder son have done if he did really know and bask in and understand the love of the father? What would the elder brother have done if he shared in the love of his father? Understanding this changes everything. Again, Kenneth Bailey, the Middle Eastern uh, scholar, he explains something crucial here. Kenneth Bailey says he went around in the Middle East uh, and he was a preacher and he preached often on this text. And he explained it to people. And often after explaining the beginning of the story, how the younger brother had insulted and broken the relationship, broken the heart of his father, he would stop in the Middle East and ask, okay, whose job is it, whose duty is it to mend this broken relationship? And Kenneth Bailey says, without fail, everybody said, everyone in that culture knew, the older brother. In that context... In that culture, the older brother should have stepped out. He should have stepped up. He should have been the mediator. He should have gone to his younger brother and said, what are you thinking? Should have gone to his father and encouraged him and tried to bring them back together as well. And if this elder brother was a good brother, if he was anything like his father at all, he would have done something dramatically different. And Edmund Clowney, the well-known preacher I mentioned before, he shares the perfect example of a good, a true older brother. Edmund Clowney says many years ago, during the Vietnam War, a pilot named Daniel Dawson went missing in action when his plane went out over the jungle in Vietnam. And the army notified his family that he was missing, and they, of course, were distraught. And so his brother Donald quit his job and mortgaged his house and bought a plane ticket to Vietnam. There he went from town to town searching for his brother. He made and printed and distributed flyers asking if anyone had seen him. Even though he was from an enemy nation very clearly and he only knew a few lines of Vietnamese, no one killed him. Most people left him alone. He became known in the area all around it as the pilot's brother. That is a loving brother. And we need to remember, like we read before, this is the third parable in Luke 15. Jesus is responding to the Pharisees' criticism that he receives sinners and eats with them. 
And he responds with a three-part lesson that's all called a parable in the, the singular. They all go together. The first part of the story is a shepherd. A shepherd who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. And what does that shepherd do? He leaves the 99 and he goes out and seeks the one who is lost. Likely for days. And then when he finds him, he picks up that heavy, smelly, foolish animal, puts it on his shoulders, brings it home, and celebrates with everyone. The second story is a woman who loses a coin, 10% of her money. And so what does she do? She drops everything as she starts to seek. She sweeps the floor. She looks around her house and does not stop until she finds that coin. And then she celebrates. And finally, we get to the third story. A son, a brother, a human being is lost. And what does the elder brother do? Nothing. He watches his brother go. He can't even be bothered to join in the party afterwards when he comes back. We need a better older brother. That's the point of this story. And by God's grace, brothers and sisters, we have him. Jesus Christ, of course, is the good shepherd in that first parable, isn't he? Jesus Christ is like this woman who searches the house relentlessly until he finds that coin. And finally, Jesus Christ is our true older brother. The one who, when we were lost, he went to the Father and he said, Father, I'm going to go get them. I'll leave heaven itself to find them. That's what Jesus Christ said about you and me for some reason. He said, I'll wrap my arms around them and I'll bring them home. And when I do, Father, we are going to celebrate on my dime. I know the rest of the inheritance is mine, but what's mine is my brother's or my sister's too. Our brother, Jesus Christ, he will give us everything. He gave up even his life for us so that he and the Father could throw a celebration, set up a banner, welcome us home. And that is the beautiful message of this passage. Notice what the scribes and Pharisees accused Jesus of in verse 2. I've mentioned it several times. They accused Jesus of receiving sinners and eating them. But what does Jesus' response in this chapter say? No, 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 Jesus explains. You've got it all wrong. I don't receive sinners and eat with them. I seek sinners to eat with them. He came out to seek you and me when we were lost. Thank God for this wonderful older brother, the Messiah, the one who actually shares his father's heart and who came to seek and save those who were lost and perishing. We know it cost him a lot more than his inheritance, but he redeemed us with his own precious blood on the cross. And now he shares his whole inheritance with us, even though we don't deserve it at all. We squandered everything we had. He had every right to keep it. He didn't want to. Let's pray that we might willingly and eagerly, wholeheartedly turn from our younger brother ways and our older brother ways, and that more and more we might look to the true older brother and pray, plead with God, that we might look a little bit more like him. Pray that we might have hearts that just long to live with and serve our Heavenly Father, never feeling like slaves, never feel like listening to him and his commands is a burden. It's a delight. It's a privilege. What a joy. We can serve our Father now and forever. We should praise him that he gives us commands and teaches us how to live in his household once again because he could have left us 
outside, but he wouldn't. And let's pray that our hearts might resemble our older brother and our heavenly father, that we might have no greater joy in life than seeing sinners come to repentance. May that be our greatest aim in our families, in our friend groups, in our church, and in our neighborhood until Christ returns or calls us home. And we know that when he does, then for once and for all, we'll get to enter into the feast that Christ has prepared for us. We'll get to see the welcome banners, so to speak, in heaven with our own names on them by God's grace. And even more than now, finally we'll understand our fathers and our elder brothers. Wonderful welcome for people like Noah, like us. Amen.